transpire in this in the second commandment. We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. May we then not make any image at all. God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity. No, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. After the sermon, we will voice our amen together by singing from Psalm 26, Psalm 26, stanzas 2, 5, 6, and 7. Love congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you compare the first and the second commandment, at first glance it might seem as, they, as if they are pretty much the same. The first commandment tells us we may not serve false gods, and the second tells us we may not serve idols. But idols are false gods, and false gods are idols. So what's really the difference between these two commandments? Well, the difference is this, that the first commandment deals with the object of our worship and the second commandment deals with the manner of our worship. The second commandment forbids the worship of the true God in an unworthy manner. It's not enough that we worship the correct God, but we also must worship the correct God correctly. And this is still a matter of idolatry. We might assume that if we get the first commandment right, then we'll get the second one right too. We don't have images after all. But the real essence of idolatry, congregation, is to entertain thoughts about God that are not worthy of God. It is to come to God with imaginations about him that come from our mind and not from Scripture. For example, someone might say, I like to think of God as the heavenly architect. Or, I like to think of God as the great timekeeper. Or, a loving father who just is very nice to us. What we mean then is, I like to think about God this way and not that way. And so the result is that we worship him the way we think of him. But that is exactly what the second commandment forbids. In the second commandment, we are instructed to worship the Lord in the right manner. We are instructed to worship the Lord in the right manner. And so we'll consider then what this commandment means, why it's important, and how this applies to our relationship with the Lord. <clears throat> well, in the first commandment, the Lord reveals that he is interested only in having a very, an exclusive relationship with his people. There are to be no other gods. There is there is nothing that may come between us and the Lord. In the second commandment, God tells us that he is concerned that he alone is to be worshipped then without any symbols of himself, but only according to what he has revealed about himself in his word. And that's very important. 
Because even if we are successful in obeying the first commandment, we can still make terrible mistakes when it comes to the second commandment. And we read an example of that in 2 Kings chapter 10. The record of Jehu and the destruction of the priests of Baal. Jehu was not pleased with the Baal worship in Israel. So he comes up with a sneaky plan to get rid of it and to get rid of the priests of Baal. He pretends to be more passionate about Baal worship than Ahab was. He gets all of the priests together and he encourages them. He gives them new robes, but then he turns on them and has them all slaughtered. He shows great zeal for the Lord and he destroyed the temple of Baal and he demolished the pillar of Baal and the house of Baal and it became an outhouse instead. And you might say, wow, Jehu really, really did a good job. He really took care of that. The Bible says, thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. So far, so good. But then we read further that Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, namely the worship of God through the golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. Jehu was clear on that there is one true God to be worshipped, but he fouled up this worship by assuming that this true God could be worshipped by the means of these two golden calves that Jeroboam had set up and the ceremonies that surrounded the calf worship. And these were really, they were just pagan shrines. We need to understand that idolatry does not only exist in the worship of false gods, but also in the worship of the true God in false ways. And that's why the nature of what happens in worship is so very important. The nature of what happens here on Sundays is very important. This is not a theater. This is not an entertainment center. You don't come here to view a performance. It's not a place where we invite people to give them something that tastes sweet and doesn't leave an aftertaste. It's not a place where we just take our children to feed them something palatable, just enough to make it palatable. But it's a place where we are compelled to worship the living God together. The purpose of corporate gathering of God's people on Sunday is for worship. God's people come to worship, to apply themselves to the study of God's word, to prayer, to fellowship, and the use of the sacraments. So the entire program of the church service is not in the first place tailored to the unbeliever. It's not even in the first place tailored toward the people of God. But our gathering on Sunday is in the first place to be God-oriented. If we take the first commandment seriously, we ought to understand that the gathering of God's people in corporate worship is in the first place and fundamentally geared toward the worship of God. That is, for example, also how the New Testament church began. Think of what happened on the day of Pentecost. We read in Acts chapter 2 that after the Holy Spirit was poured out on believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. 3,000 people were added to the church and they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and prayer and fellowship. 
That is how the church worships. And the Lord was adding daily to the church those who were being saved. And we also read in that same chapter that awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And now that attracted many people. The signs and the wonders were attracting people to the church and you might say, well, that's wonderful, that's great, that's good news. But it isn't a good thing if that doesn't turn into the correct worship of God. And if you read further in the book of Acts, you see how God put a stop to this. The Lord himself put a stop to unbelievers rushing into the miracle-producing church. How did he do that? Well, he did it very dramatically and even offensively by killing two people who were bringing an offering to the church. He publicly killed Ananias and Sapphira. You can read that in Acts chapter 5. Ananias dropped dead because he lied. He lied to God. He lied to the Holy Spirit about how much money he had. He was giving to the church from a piece of land that he had sold. And three hours later, when his wife came in, she told the same lie, and they were both killed by the Lord. And then we read in Acts 5 verse 13, none dared join himself to them. You see, the Lord himself shut the door on unbelievers rushing into the church for the sake of seeing signs and wonders. He frightened them by displaying in a very dramatic way the holiness of the church and the holiness of worship. Well, what should we conclude from this? The conclusion we need to take is that worship needs to be done in truth. It may not be the worship of self, but must be the worship that is transcended so that it magnifies God and His, and His glory. And so it is then that when other people come into the church, when visitors come to the church, as we hope they will, it's not that they would, we don't need them to find something acceptable or palatable or entertaining, but something that is immediately challenging. Yes, of course, we need to welcome them at the door and ask them, do you need help to find a place to sit? But they need to find that we are meeting the Almighty God when they come to join us for worship. They should be asking, what is happening here? What's going on here? And the answer is that here we find people who are worshiping the living God and who want to worship Him correctly. And when we depart from that, we are doing something very wrong. When God constructed the temple or commanded the temple to be constructed, he made sure that there was no represent, representation of the deity. We read in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 29, that when Solomon built the temple, we read there, around all the walls of the house he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. He patterned it after the tabernacle, the and the, and the way God had told Moses to build the tabernacle. So there were engraved figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. God allowed color and shapes and images from the natural world. After all, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. But He did not allow images of Himself. And you might ask, well, what harm can that do? 
When you look at the second commandment, God says you may not make an image, any kind of image that shows something of who God is. Even if it's your best guess as to who God is. And why is that? Well, that's because our best guess will never be good enough, will it? Your best impression or image or painting will still leave something out. It won't be complete. It will not be how God reveals himself. In the 16th century, during the Great Reformation, the Reformers had to deal with this because the church in those days was full of images, what the Heidelberg Catechism refers to as books for the laity, books for the average church member. The church taught that illiterate and uneducated people needed pictures and illustrations to bring them closer to God. The congregation, nothing could be further from the truth. God wants his people to be taught by the living preaching of his word. John Calvin writes, Because God does not speak to us every day from the heavens, there are only the scriptures through which he has willed that his truth should be published. And that is why the Bible must be central in our worship services. We don't worship the Bible, but in God's word, he has made himself known to us. And so we may not limit our idea of God by creating an image or a painting of him. When God commanded the temple to be built in which his presence was manifested, there was nothing in the temple except some furniture. Isn't that interesting? The pagans in those days, if they built a temple, they would have a colossal statue of their, of their god in the temple and so that when you would come through the temple doors, you would be wowed and say, man, that looks impressive. But not in God's temple. It was just a cedar palace with the ark behind a curtain and in the ark, the tables of God's law. What was God saying with this? He was saying, don't look for me in paintings or in statues, but in my law. And so we may not portray God in any other manner than what he has commanded in his word. And that also means we may not attribute human qualities to the character of our God. We may not uh, make mental, a mental image of God. We may not measure the creator according to the limitations of what he has created. We may not fit God into a, a mold of our imagination like the friends of Job did, and even Job himself somewhat. Job was very rich, but he lost all of his possessions, including his health and his children. And then his friends came to bemoan his loss and to comfort him, or they tried, but they couldn't because they had a faulty idea of who God is. They portrayed God as a spiteful God, a God who was, who was getting Job back for what he had done. These friends had a mental image of God that portrayed him as being bound to people's behavior. If you're a righteous man, if you're a good man, God will bless you, but if you sin, God will punish you. They forgot about God's sovereignty. And that God is free to do as he pleases. They thought that God was influenced by things outside of himself. That he would react to people according to how they acted. And that's why God was angry with Job's friends. He says, my wrath is aroused against you for you have not spoken of me what is right. 
they had a, a mental image of God that was dishonoring to the Lord. And that's why this commandment is so important. Because when we transgress this commandment, we dishonor the Lord, just like Jehu did and just like Job's friends did. And so any image of God dishonors God. No matter how grand that image is, it's still going to conceal something, if not all, of the nature and character of God. And so when we say to ourselves, well, I like to think of God in a certain way, we're on very dangerous ground. God has revealed his power and his glory in creation and in the order of creation. He has revealed himself in his written word and most fully in his son, Jesus Christ. And we're not allowed to look elsewhere for a revelation of God. And we're not allowed to create anything that would divert us from that. So no statue or anything would ever do him justice. It would simply diminish our view of God. It's impossible for us to conceive of something greater than God. And whatever we would come up with would inevitably be less than God. And that is really what idolatry is too. It's our attempt to make God what he is not. To make him less than what he is. It's our attempt to conform God's image into something that, that suits us better. We do that, for example, when we think that God doesn't really take sin all that seriously. Or when we think that he's willing to bend the rules for our sake because while we're in a certain situation, God will understand if I do this or that because, well, that's the only way out for me. And when you do this, you're not taking God at his word and you are imagining him different than what he really is. Because what does the scripture say? We read in Isaiah 40, for example, to whom then would you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? You see, God is the incomprehensible one. He is infinite and unlimited, and his power cannot be measured by human standards. And there's not even, there's not even one part of him that we could portray with an image. There's, there's an immeasurable boundary between us and God. He is infinite and we are finite. He is unlimited and we are limited. And so this must fill us with the fear of God in the true sense, the biblical sense of the word fear. We must stand in awe of our God and our creator, the sovereign Lord of the universe. And we may not in any way, physically or mentally, make an image of who he is. And when we do that, it becomes sin against the second commandment. And that sin, that includes when we, in our minds, limit his power, when we limit his anger against sin, but also if we limit his grace. If we don't doubt his word, if we, if we make him out to be smaller than he really is, even if we think that our sins are too great to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, it might sound pious, but it really is idolatry because then we are thinking of God in an earthly manner. And if God's divine grace no longer moves us or fills us with awe, or if having known his grace we forsake him, then we are making a carved image in our mind of who God is. You know, brothers and sisters, it's easy for us to become apathetic Christians, isn't it? 
it's easy for us to sort of kind of to just become used to being a Christian. Right? There's many things that we do that we practice that, that are very familiar to us. Familiar, we're familiar with praying for the forgiveness of our sins, for example. Sometimes we just tack it onto the end of our prayer. We become so familiar with some things like that, that that we no longer tremble in fear before the Lord. And then basically we are like Christians who walk around with an image of God tucked under our arm. And then, then grace just fits on a small platter and, and God is, just becomes a kindly grandfather who, who presents that platter to us and, and we pick off that platter whatever we need for the day. And then we've lost sight of the overwhelming truth and power of God's word. And that's because we all too easily become like the Israelites who wanted to control the Lord by making a golden calf. That's what they did at Mount Sinai when God gave them his law. A few days later, they were making an image of a golden calf. Or to use another example, even a better example, is how they tried to manipulate God into fighting for them. Remember during the days of Samuel and Eli, the Israelites were fighting the Philistines, and they went into battle, and they lost the battle on the first day, and they said, we got to get the ark. Let's go get the ark out of the tabernacle and bring it into battle with us. Then God will, God will be on our side. God will be forced to fight for us. Well, it didn't happen, did it? And the danger is great that when we speak of our God, we put the emphasis on the word our instead of on the word God. And we can praise and thank the Lord that we may call him our God, but then let's put the emphasis where it belongs. He is the God by whom and through whom and to whom we live. And he may not be limited by our thoughts, not even by our confessions, not by our sermons, not by our theology. Even these things can become idolatry if we think that through these things we can fully understand and fully portray God. Our family prayers, our Bible reading, after meals, for example, even our worship services, these things can become idols. If these things become more important to us than God's love and grace, then they are idols then we are worshiping God in a manner in which he has not revealed to us. And if these things simply become our religious duty, instead of the means by which we experience God's grace and love, then again, they are idols. If we just perform our religious activities out of custom, or even out of a sense of guilt, then we have not understood who God is and who he is for us. Then we've made an, a mental image of God to our own liking and satisfaction, and we will not have this overwhelming sense of awe that he is not only our creator, but the God of our salvation, the God who is near us and who has come near to us in Jesus Christ. So what do we learn from this? We learn that statues and images and paintings of God, whether physical or mental, dishonor the Lord. And that's why it's so important for us to keep this commandment too, along with the first, so that we honor God with our lives. 
And this also applies to our relationship with the Lord. The Lord says in the second commandment, I am a jealous God. What does that mean? That means that he does not want to share you with anything else. He doesn't want to share your devotion. He says, I am a just God, and if you sin against me, and if you turn your back on me, there will be punishment. Even punishment that goes through the generations. The sins of years ago become exposed and obvious today. The sins of our fathers and grandfathers affect the children in the past, and even our sins of today might affect our children in the future. Just think of how the actions of Jeroboam affected the people of Israel. Even Jehu, with all his zeal for the Lord, became trapped by the worship of the golden calves in Dan and Bethel. Yes, of course, it's true we are responsible for our own sins. And it can happen that a child of God-fearing parents goes astray. It can also happen that a child of unbelieving parents turns to the Lord. But in the second commandment, we receive a warning. A warning that the way in which we think about God, and you could say the way in which you image God, has serious and long-lasting consequences through the generations. When parents are careless in their service to the Lord, the children will be too. But if parents are diligent and careful to serve the Lord, to teach their children the fear of the Lord, then we can also expect his blessing because he shows his steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. So God promises to bless those who live by his word. That's his covenant promise to those who fear him. Those who live according to God's word will be preserved in the covenant. Those who allow God's word to work in their lives may expect his blessing, the blessing of life and peace. So congregation, let's continue to look to him, our God and our Savior. The Lord Jesus made God's image known to us in his love and his grace, and he served the Father in full harmony to the Father's will. And he fulfilled all righteousness, and he fulfilled the law, and he did that for us, and he did that for all who love and fear the Lord. So let's continue to seek the Lord and God's grace, so that as image bearers of God, we can worship the Lord our God as he has revealed himself in his word. Amen.